Okay, so uh, welcome back, everyone, to the BMW Blog Podcast. This is episode 16, and we have a very special guest today. Uh, we are joined by Jackie Duray, and she is a sort of expert on BMWs. Uh, she's even written a book, and she's done, she's done a lot of really cool stuff with BMWs in the past, so we're really happy to have her. And we're also joined by uh, Horatio, who is our editor-in-chief. And uh, so, yeah, how are you guys doing? Great. Hey, Nico, good. Good. good to have you again. And thank you for joining us, or joining me, both of you. Um, so, Jackie, I want to start things off and kind of just ask you how you got into BMWs. Like, where does your love for BMWs come from? <laughs> it goes back um, It goes back a long time, actually. Um, when I was growing up, the 2002 was still in production. But and so was the Bavaria, the uh, the sedan. I always thought those cars were really old-fashioned looking, and I didn't really understand the appeal of them. But when the 320i came out, when the E21 was released, I was in high school, and I thought that was about the coolest-looking car I'd ever seen. Um, it looked modern. And it looked restrained but stylish. It was just a really cool-looking car, in my opinion. And it really changed my opinion about BMW um, from something that was really staid and old-fashioned and really a 60s car into something that looked, quite honestly, more like an 80s car. It was very forward-thinking. Of course, it was designed by Paul Brock, as everybody knows. But um, <laughs> And then I got lucky. I mean, I never owned a car, you know, almost until I was probably, you know, 27 or something like that. I always lived in cities and didn't need one. But um, when I was in college, I had a boyfriend who had a 320i, and he used to let me drive it, <laughs> reluctantly let me drive it. I don't, I don't think he enjoyed it when I drove his car, but um, because I think he always thought I was going too fast. But around our college, we had a lot of great twisty roads, and um, so I would catch rides in that thing and, you know, really enjoy driving it. So it really goes back to that. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't a big car person. You know, I was really more into motorcycles, you know, not only for practicality reasons, lack of space, et cetera, but also because they're quite honestly they're more fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, eventually, if you want to stay alive, as a journalist writing about things like motorsports and cars and motorcycles, you probably need to switch to four wheels. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. And um, I started working for a company at the very beginning of 1999. I was hired by a company called Ross Periodicals. Um, I had been editing a local motorcycle magazine in San Francisco and needed to get out of that and do something different. And through connections with friends, got a job at Ross Periodicals, which published a number of car magazines, as well as a few other things. Um, and before long, an opportunity to edit Bimmer magazine came up. And I had already been doing some stuff with Bimmer editing and things, but it was kind of a natural fit in a certain sense. I can't claim that I had any real mark expertise other than, you know, liking the cars and feeling a really uh, strong affinity with the brand formula, as I would say, of, you know, sort of a, I mean, I, I was also working on the Ferrari magazine and I love Ferraris, but 
there's also something ridiculous about a Ferrari. There's nothing <laughs> ridiculous about a BMW. It's just, it's a great performing car that's understated, tasteful. You can take it anywhere and, and not look ridiculous. But anyway, um, I ended up doing that for 18 years. I, I was the editor of that magazine for 18 years, and it was oh, just wow. a blast. But, you know, as, as I'm sure you guys from the, the online side of things know all too well, you oh. know, print, print is tough. And, yeah, you know, <laughs> we managed we managed to survive the economic crisis of 2008 in really good shape, but we couldn't really hold back the tide, I think. You know, a very small company, um, limited resources for marketing and promotion, um, you know, and eventually you just decide, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to improve, so you pack it up. Yeah. But... Um, that, as far as I'm concerned, was just a fantastic training ground for what came next because, you know, when you're immersed in a subject, as you guys know from doing BMW blog, when you're immersed in a subject for 18 years, you end up with this very specific body of knowledge. And, you right. know, and then the job is, okay, what do I do with this? You know, you have, yeah. To, yeah. You have to figure that out, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, so, yeah, so that actually brings me to our uh, the real first topic, right? So, I was at Pebble Beach, uh, was it two years ago that we've seen the um, 507 roster? That was and, uh, 2016, actually. So, 2016, so, so three yeah. years ago. So, mm -hmm. that's the first time when I've heard, you know, the story from you and some other BMW guys about, the, you know, the Elvis Presley car. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize it was actually you that actually started that whole, you know, digging process to find the car and all of that. So with that being said, I've never really heard a full story from you. So I think this will be the great venue kind of tell us how you went about and maybe give us some some insights that we haven't heard before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a really, a really satisfying episode. Um, so how this came about is that BMW and I'm just going to tell you, this is all in my latest book. <laughs> and what's, and what's the name of your book? Self-promotion here. It's called, no, Finding, no. It's, it's called Finding Elvis's 507, and it's available on Amazon.com. But um, I'll summarize the story really quickly. BMW publishes press. They put press photos online periodically, and sometimes they're attached with a story, and sometimes it's just a random photo that they make available you know, maybe with, a, you know, some sort of caption information or whatever. And in 2005, they made available a photograph of Elvis Presley taking a test drive in a 507 from 1957. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was... Uh, really interesting, actually. Actually, yeah. it was 19, 1958. Sorry, my mistake. Um, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, when you're an editor of a magazine, you're always looking for stories. And we always had to have, you know, something historical in the magazine. But, you know, there's also the attraction of a celebrity connection. You know, I mean, you're just thinking really about what sells magazines, what's interesting, basically. Exactly. And... Right. You know, I had no idea that Elvis had ever driven or owned a 507. So I thought, well, you know, this is interesting. Where is that car today? And I started poking around on the Internet, as one does, and found out that a car had been sold as the Elvis 507 
fairly, you know, not long before that, actually. Mm-hmm. But there were things about the story that didn't make sense um, when you compared them to other stories about Elvis and his 507. So one of the crucial things that I learned from editing our Ferrari magazine, which was called Forza, still being published, actually, was that a car's chassis number is the essential piece of data that you begin with when you're researching its history. It's effectively like the car's social security number. It's there when it leaves the factory and it's there, you know, for the rest of the car's life, then there's only one. And I was able to determine, you know, really through deductive reasoning and, you know, with the help of the official book that was published by BMW Classic on the 507, uh, which was written by Dr. Karl-Heinz Lange, that the car in question, the Elvis Presley car, was not 70192, which is the one that had been auctioned as his car, but it was 70079. And the book that Dr. Lange wrote doesn't state that explicitly. You have to keep, you know, going back and forth between different sets of, of information to realize that that's which car this is. Okay. So... Um, I put it out in the magazine. You know, I, I basically wrote a short article and said, this is what I think. If anyone has any ideas, if anyone knows where this car might be, let me know. Okay. You know, just throw the information out and see what happens. And so about two years later, I got a call, I got a letter actually from a guy who happened to be about 20 miles away. And he told me that he owned 70079. <laughs> and, you know, and I. That's advantageous. <laughs> yes, it was. I was like, wow, that, you know, how often is that going to happen? Yeah. Stuff, you know, and he, he acknowledged that it could be Elvis's car, but he had no proof of that. And he didn't want to make any claims that it was Elvis's car because he had no documentation. But he invited me to come down and see it. And so I did, and I brought photographer Helmut Werb with me, and we went to Half Moon Bay where Jack Castor lived and, you know, spent the day with him looking at all his documentation and looking at the car and photographing the car. And after that, um, I got in touch with BMW, and they did verify that it was Elvis's car. Um, they have a policy of not communicating chassis numbers, basically, except to the owners. So, um, I think it's just, I don't really know, privacy. but I assume it's to protect people's privacy. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to understand, but, um, you know, that's, that's my speculation about why they might do it. But, um, but they did confirm it, and, you know, that... And then I published the story, obviously, and that really opened the floodgates for more information coming out. Um, one of the car's former owners, prior to Jack Castor, got in touch with me. I, I was able to learn a lot more about the car. Um, so, so he was I, not the first owner, basically, that had the car. Oh, no, 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 no. He wasn't the first owner. The, the car had actually been owned by BMW initially. It was used as a demonstration car. And this is really key to figuring out which one it was because it wasn't really an anonymous vehicle sold to a customer. Mm-hmm. It was owned by BMW. It was used for road tests in magazines. It was raced by Hans Stuck. And then it was delivered to Elvis in Frankfurt while he was serving with the U.S. Army in Germany. 
understand. And, yeah, and he drove it for oh, probably a little over a year while he was in Germany. Okay. And then, you know, as you probably know, service members can bring back cars mm -hmm. from yeah. overseas at, you know, a, a, a minimal cost. So he did that, but he never actually drove the car in the United States to the best of our ability to determine. It was sold to a Chrysler dealer. It, it ended up with a Chrysler dealer in New York City. And this is where the story actually gets kind of funny and weird. <laughs> it was, um, I don't want to give too much away because I want people yeah, to exactly. read the book, but, <laughs> but it was purchased by a DJ from Alabama named Tommy Charles. Okay. And who, well, he saw, he was reading New York Times and he saw it advertised by a Chrysler dealer in New York and thought, wow, I'd love to have a 507. And this one is half price, you know? So, um, so he went up there and got it and drove it back to Birmingham and turned it into a hot rod. Yeah, so to not give away the full story, and then after Jack got the car, did the car go back to Germany for restoration? Yes, it did. Um, Jack was a really interesting character, and he um, he was an aerospace engineer. He worked for Lockheed Martin in their advanced research division in Palo Alto. Um, yeah, really kind of crazy smart guy, but he was very, he, he was also eccentric, and I don't mean that in, in a pejorative sense, I mean, he, but he was a character, and he had a lot of cars. His daily driver was a Ferrari 250 Tour de France. Oh, um, wow. not, uh, no, I'm sorry, not a TDF. It was a California Spider. My mistake. Steel. Steel. Oh. Um, actually, even better. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and he had a lot of cars. And he had, he had another 507. He also owned 70089. Um, but very few of his cars actually ran. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a he had a warehouse full of cars that were awaiting restoration, and the two five oh sevens were were part of that group. But you know, he was probably I want to say he was seventy two when I met him for the first time. But he was he was really fit. He was a a bicyclist. He was a super enthusiastic bicyclist. Who actually, and this is a really funny little fact that you know, he actually held the the record for crossing the United States on a penny farthing. Uh -huh. um, that bicycle with the giant front yeah. wheel and the really tiny exactly. yeah, yeah. back wheel. Um, and he, that is he had, I, It's a really odd thing. You know, he had that record actually not once but twice. You know? So <laughs> oh he said it once, someone beat it, and then he said it again because he didn't want to lose it. So what any, anyway, um, definitely eccentric guy, but... Yeah. He really believed that the Elvis 507 belonged in the BMW Museum. And I agreed with him and, you know, put him in touch with certain people at BMW Classic. And they worked out a deal. It took many years. It took a lot of persuasion, mostly at BMW, not really from Jack, but to – he basically left the car to the BMW Museum him in as well um he actually even before he died he had given them the car and in exchange he wanted to make sure it was restored. and he wanted to get his other 507 restored so that he would have one you know <laughs> to drive around half moon day or wherever he was going 
which I think is really cool. Um, a lot of people online speculated that he had made up this story just to enhance the value of his own car. Um, but that it couldn't be further from the truth, you know, because he effectively gave the car away. So, and people had been offering him millions of dollars for that car, but sure. he didn't want to, he didn't want to see it disappear into some private collection. He wanted that car to be where people could enjoy it and, you know, learn the story and, and appreciate it, you know, for yeah, its history. Yeah. Piece of history and car, car history, not just BMW history. Yeah, exactly. So he really did the right thing by that car, which, yeah. which I think was pretty cool. But unfortunately, he died before the restoration was complete. So he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't there at Monterey when they unveiled it in 2016 for the 100th anniversary. So, yeah. so what was, uh, what was people's reaction, you know, when they first saw the car? Well, it's, it's hard to know. I know what my reaction was. <laughs> Make sure you start um, with your, yeah. <laughs> well, I was, I was pretty moved actually because, um, how can I put this? You know, having had a role in bringing the car into the light, it was really cool for me to see Jack's wishes for it fulfilled. Yeah. Um, right. I think, I think, I think very few people in life are that lucky that their stuff has this afterlife that's, that they could be proud of. And I think BMW did the right thing. They did a, they did an exquisite, Klaus Kutcher led an exquisite restoration of that car. And just seeing, seeing his face as he drove that car around Monterey was really priceless for me because he and Jack were really good friends. They'd gotten to know each other really well over the years, and and I think it meant a lot to Klaus and to me, and to Ron Gilmartin, who was the recipient of the other 507, to see this happen. You know, to see yeah. these two cars restored and presented, you know, at Pebble Beach, where Jack went to Pebble every year. He loved Pebble Beach. Um, who doesn't? Who yeah, doesn't? Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a great event. It's really fun. So. You know, I think it was it was kind of moving, and I think it was instructional for a lot of people that um, hadn't been aware of Elvis's connection to BMW. I think it was it was a really interesting little bit of history that didn't have anything to do with racing necessarily. It had to do with culture, yeah. and and right. that intersection between a real cultural phenomenon like Elvis and BMW was really cool. Yeah, it's quite unique. And the car is now in Munich, right? So basically to the BMW Museum, probably. Yes. Yeah, it goes on and off display, and it's taken to events. I think it was at the Goodwood Fest, uh, the Goodwood Revival last year okay. in a special display. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's cool. So how long did it take you to um, kind of write a book and put everything together? <laughs> well... Um, I, I did it pretty quickly because I'd written the story a couple of times already, right. but um, this time I really wanted to make it as detailed as possible. So I spent a couple of months putting everything together, and I got a lot of help from Ron Gilmartin, who was the executor of Jack's estate. He supplied me with all kinds of documentation that I didn't necessarily have already. 
and helped me put it all in order. So his help was invaluable. He should really have a co-author credit almost. Uh, I got more photographs from BMW so people can see, you know, more about Elvis's life with the car, a little bit more about the car in its, in its various stages of, of hot rodding and restoration. So it, it took a couple months, but, you know, it would have taken me a year if I'd had to start from scratch. You know? I understand, yeah. So uh, tell us again the name of the book, and we can find it on Amazon, right? Yes, it is called Finding Elvis's 507, The Quest for the World's Most Famous BMW. Perfect. So now we're definitely going to encourage our readers to uh, to go by that and support journalism, not just you and, you know, Elvis. But uh, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's a fantastic book. I've, I've seen the book. I have to admit, I've not read it, but now uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to go by Jackie, so I'm going to be the first one to do that. Okay. Yeah. So, cool. So that actually, uh, yeah, exactly. So now you have another book, right? So it's even, I mean, it's not more interesting, but I think it's definitely more part of BMW history, right? So 2002, as you mentioned, when we started the uh, podcast, it's probably one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic BMW car. <laughs> so, I mean, every time that I see a 2002, I'm, I'm just fascinated about the car. There's something about that little car that's so special. It's just hard to explain. I've always said that maybe one day I'll, I will own one. Um, but, you know, since you wrote another book on it, maybe you can tell us more about the car and about its history. I know it's a very comprehensive book as well. I've, uh, I've read a few things that you posted uh, on, uh, on social media about the, about the book. Yeah, this one is called The BMW 2002, The Real Story Behind the Legend, and also available on Amazon.com. Um, <laughs> this one came about um, because I had written a book uh, to accompany the exhibit staged by the BMW CCA Foundation. I've actually written three books for the BMW CCA Foundation. The first was Heroes of Bavaria. Which, which I have. Yeah, which accompanied our um 2017 show about BMW motorsport vehicles. In Which, the by the way, it's awesome. So I definitely encourage people to get that one because the photography in that book and the quality yeah. of the book, it's just absolutely amazing. And I have to say, my copy that I got, uh, I actually gave it to Alex in Romania who works for BMW, and I know he's a huge fan. So I actually took it with me last summer and gave it to him. It was, I think it was like five or six pounds heavy. <laughs> but it was a fantastic book. I mean, the, the, the images are just unbelievable. So I highly recommend, you know, any BMW fan to get that one because it's just a, it's just a fantastic one. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. Great design, great photography. Hopefully the writing is, is up to par as well. Um, yeah, BMW CCA Foundation's 2018 exhibit was about the 2002 and it was called Icon. And, it celebrated 50 years of the car. It had every iteration of the 2002 in it, and it gave me an opportunity to go to the BMW archive and get some information about the car's creation because the 2002, it, it really is an iconic BMW. It's really the iconic BMW in the United States because it's the car that made BMW popular here for the first time, the one that really right. struck a chord with, with American drivers. Right, the David E. Davis review, right? Exactly. Yep, absolutely. It's called Turn Your Hymnals to 2002. <laughs> and the car had been subject to a lot of misinformation about its origins, and it largely resulted from the fact that 
the importer at the time, Max Hoffman, was quite a good self-promoter. And even though people who knew him would dispute this, I think he liked to take credit for things that may have been exaggerating his role. <laughs> um, you know, he liked to say that he had, you know, effectively guided Albrecht von Goertz's pen into designing the 507, and I find that far-fetched, and so do designers. But he also took credit for demanding that BMW put its two-liter two motor in the small two-door chassis. So I wanted to go back through the documentation and find out who really deserved credit for doing that. And so I spoke to, I spoke to a number of people who had been around at the time, but I also went to the BMW archive in Munich and looked at all the documentation. And they have board meeting minutes from um, uh, the 50s to the present with a couple, a little bit of a gap somewhere. And I determined that Max had been blowing smoke. <laughs> so, no. No, no. So um, this is really the story. There's, there's a lot about Max Hoffman. There's a lot about the origins, what I consider the true origins of the 2002, and they lie elsewhere. It's, it's really a more organic development within the course of BMW's history. But it also tells the story of how each of the variants were, were created, including the touring, which has also been the subject of misinformation. A lot of people were giving credit to designers who had nothing to do with it. Um, the turbo, how did that come about? Some interesting backstories on the models that have become really treasured over the years. Right. So without um, giving away too much from your book, yeah, just go ahead, Nico. Oh no, I was going to say um, the the touring. I don't. I'm not familiar with like the history. Is there is there like a you know a common uh, like myth, so to speak, about how it was like how it came about, or? Well, the myth was actually perpetuated by BMW. If you're familiar with the series of books that BMW Classic, aka Mobile Tradition, put out. They have one called The Cult Car, and it was one of the very few one, few books they published, one of the very first books they published, I should say. And it credits Paul Brock with the design. Okay. And Paul Brock was the head of design at the time the car came out, but he really had nothing to do with designing the touring. Okay. Um, so, so you want to find out did. who really designed <laughs> <laughs> So we should read the book then, right? get the book. <laughs> <laughs> that would be giving the game away. But that is true. Well, I, what I will tell you is that BMW was working along those lines for a long time. Uh, they had plans to do a lot of different body styles for the 2002. Um, and, and I'm using the term 2002 to describe what BMW calls the small two-door. Correct. So really everything within that body style. It started out as the 1600-2 and then became a few other things along the way. But they had, they had body style variants in mind from the moment the car was first conceived, was first discussed in the board. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. So another really cool book. So, again, we can find that on Amazon, right? Yes, you can. Perfect. All right. All right, so let's let me ask you a question now. So we've talked about all the you know uh, BMW classic cars. How do you see the change within BMW, or or how do you see things you know evolving? I mean, you've seen the history of the brand, and how do you see its future? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I think if you had asked me that four or five years ago, I would have given you a very different answer than I than I would today. Four okay. or five years ago, I would have told you that they were on the verge of losing what had made them special. And by that, I mean a very individualistic, driver-oriented focus okay. in which driving dynamics were paramount. I think they lost their way a little bit. I think they hired some people to crucial roles who didn't understand what they had, who didn't really treasure what makes BMW unique. Um, I don't want to name any names here, but <laughs> basically an enthusiast car is not a tube of toothpaste. Okay. It's, it's not a desk. It's not, um, it, it's not an ordinary consumer product. If I had to, if I had to, to name something that's most analogous to a car, I'd probably say a musical instrument. Um, because it's something that we interact with almost intimately, you know, and how it feels to us is every bit as important as what it does. Yes, it's transportation, but if, if that were all we wanted, we'd buy a Honda. Right, we'd all be in Corollas. Yeah, and, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, those are, those are fine products. They, they do exactly what they're supposed to do, but if you want something different, you really should look further afield, basically. Um, but I think they have managed, I think, I also think they were making cars that were too heavy and which didn't handle crisply enough. I think they had moved in a direction which was more luxury oriented and too soft and way too complicated. Um, I have no way of addressing the complication. I don't know whether they're still too complicated or not, but I know they're not as soft as they had gotten. I think they've regained a certain primacy in terms of driving dynamics. I think they've gotten it back on track. And I would credit that turnaround to a guy named Klaus Froelich, who is the head of R&D on the BMW board. Right. He's a real enthusiast. He and is. I, I think spoke with him a few times. Yeah, truly is. The fascinating thing about a company like BMW, and I, I would have to assume any corporation, is that individual executives, no matter how large the company is, can still have an outsized role in the outcome of the products. And whoever is sitting in that chair as being head of R&D for the board really has a huge amount of influence over what the cars feel like. And I think Froelich is hes an enthusiast. He's a bicyclist he's a driver he he's the real deal and that's not to say that his predecessors weren't but i think they had slightly different priorities gotcha right. he um i remember reading recently with the new three series he he actually kind of got like almost a little bit frustrated with like journalists kind of complaining about the f30 generation three series and he said like he really took uh the new g21 like really personally like he really wanted to make that a proper driver's car. Do you credit that as like one of the turnarounds, like that car? Well, yeah, I think really it goes back to the first four series though. That was the first one that he was in charge of development okay. fully. And 
He really wanted that car to address the shortcomings of its three series counterpart. And that that's where the tide turned. You know, when he got what he wanted, he got a chassis that was better bolted together, you know, less rubber in the chassis, uh, right. sharper handling. And that's where you see the real turnaround. Yeah, uh-huh. and I think the uh, G20 is a fantastic car. Um, yeah, in the 330i, the M340i. I mean, you can you can tell the difference from the previous generation, and you can see mm-hmm. kind of the direction they're heading towards. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm excited to kind of see you know what's coming this year, you know, the Ford series, and also the uh, next year the new M3 and M4. So I think we're finally going to see some you know real drivers' cars. So yeah, you know, which is not to say that they weren't making real drivers' cars, but I don't think it was it was true across the board like it had been in the past. You know, I go back to, I, th- I think about the E38 7 Series, and that was an absolutely brilliant driver's car. Yeah. And that, I think, is, is it's the, the essence of BMW, where it's a car that you look at it and you think, oh, it's a Lincoln Continental. And then you drive it and you're like, no, it's a Ferrari. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's something that should look innocuous, at least to an extent, but drive like a sports car. And that's their stuff in trade to me. That's the essence of the brand. Yeah, that actually, that car is one of the cars that originally got me interested in BMW when I was younger and saw the movie Transporter. Yeah. <laughs> of all things, that, that the E38 7 Series. I actually like fell in love with that when I was younger. So I was like, that kind of got me into the brand. Cool. Cool. Sorry. So I don't want to keep it alone, but I do have one more question for you. And um has to do with something more with traveling. So... You and I met last year out of all places in Transylvania. And I yes. think we were in the land of Dracula, actually near one of his castles. So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. What was your experience there and what were you doing in Transylvania? <laughs> well, it, first of all, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I had been invited by your friend and mine, Alex Saramet, to participate in the Sanaya Concours that he organizes for BMW, BMW Romania. Mm-hmm. And I, I happened to be in Greece already at that time. And so it was really easy for me just to pop up, you know, participate in the Concours. I served on the jury, uh, um, hung out, wrote some stories about it, took a lot of photographs, published a story on it um, in Roundel magazine, the BMW CCA magazine. And I have to tell you, I had a great time. It's obviously not Pebble Beach. You know, the cars aren't that exotic. They're not, you know, restored to that level, although some of them were. Some of them I would put against anything at Pebble Beach. But but what I really liked about it was the passion. I think the people who were exhibiting cars there, they all had a great story. They all had a really personal connection to the car they were showing. It wasn't checkbook concord at all it was love and the stories that people had to tell about how they had gotten kept restored the cars were just fantastic and i think it's it's really easy for americans to take things for granted to take a number of things for granted um freedom of expression material abundance um, money, food, right. shelter. There's a lot. There's a lot we take for granted because, you know, obviously, not everybody falls into this category. But for most of us, life is pretty easy. 
And I think being around, being in a situation like that where people had to work really hard to get what they wanted and had to be really dedicated to their passion, it was really refreshing. Um, I think, and it was hospitable. It was lovely. People yeah, were nice. That's what I, had, I agree. Yeah, I, I had so many wonderful conversations. And I think the fact that it's not touristy was really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, the scenery is pretty amazing. The castle that, that where the conqueror was, it's quite amazing. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. It's and I think, amazing. you know, people, people aren't really very aware of Romania. I think the, you know, the fact that obviously it was behind the Iron Curtain for a long time made it less accessible, but I think people have a lot of misconceptions about that country. And I've, you know, I've lived in, I, I lived in Greece and I've been there many times. So I'm familiar with the Balkans yeah. uh, and, and that part of the world. And I like it. And I, I think it has a fascinating history, but I think people, people tend to assume things about Romania that it's going to be more backward than it really is or less developed what I found that I really appreciated was a really hip, sophisticated, and yet not jaded and not obsessed with irony. Just a really nice place where people were enjoying their lives and open, yeah. open to conversation, open to meeting new people and welcoming. I think, I think that's the cool part about some of these countries, right? I mean, there is... Still a lot of car, uh, car culture there without having to own an expensive car. So I know they have like large car clubs. They're based on the local car called Dacia mm -hmm. and people are passionate about that one. There was an SUV back in the day called Auto. So they're like a bunch of people that, you know, there's so much into cars, but not necessarily expensive cars. So that's kind of cool to see in that part of the world, right? Every time that I go, I see people being really, really passionate about cars. And also the fact that we didn't get a lot of Dachos in this country. So if you go there as an American, you're going to see all kinds of things that you'd never seen before and that you had no idea existed. Yeah. So that was really cool. I felt like I learned a lot from being there, and I hope I learn more by going back next summer. Cool. Well, maybe I'll see you there. Uh, you <laughs> will. I'm there. <laughs> Perfect. I'll wear my schedule around that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really a fantastic event, and I think I think any car enthusiast one of one of the really cool things about this hobby is that you have an excuse to go places. Exactly. You can always find something car related and let that be an entryway into an entire country, into an entire community of people, because it gives you something to talk about. You know, if you go somewhere just as an ordinary tourist, the only people you're probably going to talk to are the hotel desk clerk and the waiter. <laughs> But, you know, you're not going to learn a lot unless you really go out of your way, you know, to have conversations with people and to ask them about their lives. But if yeah. you're a car enthusiast, you can go to a car show anywhere in the world and strike up conversations with people about their cars. And that will lead you into all kinds of other directions. Yeah, I mean, really I think wonderful. I think cars are the best ice, uh, the best icebreaker, right? I mean, I think there is anything better than that. Right. You know, everybody's got a, a favorite car or something they they like. You know, even if they might not be, uh, you know, full passionate about cars, but it's the best icebreaker for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, for even sure. something something even as simple as upholstery fabric. You know, if you're not into cars, 
necessarily you know you can still find things to appreciate like wow look at that cool upholstery as i've never seen that it's it's so psychedelic or whatever and there's always something whether it's aesthetic or technical or historical to appreciate about cars i I agree very cool well we don't want to keep you any longer um honestly it was it was really cool having you uh, the stories are great. Uh, we definitely encourage people to read your books as well. And, you know, we're looking forward to having you back on our show, maybe. And we're going to, you know, pick some other topics next time. And, you know, maybe maybe kind of still focus on the BMW history since you're definitely the expert in that. And I think people will find it very interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. I'll be, I'll be happy to come back anytime. And I want to say I think you guys are doing a great job. I think BMW blog, watching it evolve over the years has been really cool. Really, really happy to see you guys reaching a huge audience and having this success. Thank you so much. I mean, it's a lot coming from you. I truly appreciate it. Very cool. Um, I look forward to seeing you next time. Nico, you know, (laughs) you're you're in charge, so lead lead the way. All right. uh, Jackie, actually, if you just want to, like, say the name of your books real fast again, give another plug. So uh, any... Listeners can just go back on Amazon real quick and check them out. Absolutely. The first book we discussed is called Finding Elvis's 507, The Quest for the World's Most Famous BMW. And the 2002 book is called simply The BMW 2002, The Real Story Behind the Legend. Mm -hmm. And they are both available on Amazon. They're both published by me. So um, nice covers, not great inside printing, but... There you go. But I also want to give a plug to the BMW CCA Foundation because we use the books as a fundraiser. They are beautifully presented. And one, the first one is Heroes of Bavaria. The second one is called The Icon. And the third most recent one is called Passion. And that's a history of the last 50 years of BMW's enthusiast oriented cars and the, and the community that formed around them, whether that means the BMW CCA or other independent groups. That's kind of, it, it's a very broad topic, I know, 50 years of enthusiast cars, but I think that anyone who picks it up will learn something about the cars that got us really excited. Okay, awesome. Thank you very much for uh, uh, spending some time with us and talking to, talking to us about all the, your books and you know, all your great stories, so we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we hope to have you on again sometime in the near future. Great. Thanks, Jackie. guys. All right, Thanks. thank you. Hi, so. Hi.